0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discussions and Dragons, the podcast where my brother and I take an in-depth look at the world of 5e and all things Dungeons and Dragons. Opening and closing music credit to Will Savino at Patreon.com/slash/musicd20. I'm Britton. and I'm Jaron. And this week, we're continuing our serialized look at the new sourcebook for Fifth Edition, titled Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Tasha's has introduced new and optional rules for character creation, as well as a ton of new quality of life additions to fully round out your campaign. This week, we're focusing on group patrons.
1: Right, so when we're talking about patrons, uh, what we mean and what the the book qualifies uh, as patrons is not necessarily like a religious deity. That's kind of the one I assume that they were referring to at first, but this could be um, an individual or a whole organization that basically is fueling your adventuring party, giving them assignments, tasks, quests to go, to go on and to, uh, to achieve. And uh, we're going to talk about a few of those. The book gives some specific examples, um, but really this could be, um, could be anything
0: yeah i think it's it's a really cool way to run the campaign or direct the narrative flow um you know instead of taking jobs randomly like sometimes i know parties especially in a homebrew campaign it can feel like you're just picking up odd jobs from the the local job market or the job board and you don't really see the cohesiveness of your exploits or your efforts so far So I think that having the group patron be the one that is doling out these missions to you, it may feel a little bit more cohesive. And I think that also having a group patron eliminates the potentially clunky situation where players, you know, they need to generate the reason for all of them to be working together. Because I know, unless you're playing a from the book adventure, sometimes it's hard for heavy RPers to justify in their mind why their character would stay.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I, I really like the idea of a group patron for that reason. It gives your players some cohesiveness right off the bat, and uh, can help help you maybe write your backstory together, the reason why we're all working together, some of our history, uh, as well as it's a really good creative tool for the DM, right? And uh, it can give some some creative storytelling cues. Uh, in that regard. Um, and this is flexible enough such that you could use it both in a homebrew setting and as a pre-written adventure. Uh, you know, for example, um, there's a number of already existing organizations and groups in the world of uh, the Faerun and the, ro- the world of D&D uh, that could be these patrons that are doling out uh, assignments, tasks, quests.
0: Yeah, and um, when I was reading that section, I, I immediately thought because I had done the uh, the Waterdeep Dragon Heist adventure, and Xanathar's Guild was a major player in that story, as, uh, as well as the Grey Hands, and those are backed by Xanathar himself and Vajra Blackstaff, respectively. So there are people and entities, just like Jaren said, that already exist in the 5E world. Um, like Forgotten Realms. But you can also, if you wanted to pick from you know Greyhawk or even if your DM wanted to make a person that exists in their universe, that is totally fine. It could be a reflection of one of the examples given if they wanted to have a little bit more structure. But again, just like any other book for fifth edition, this is just a jumping off point. They're giving you the bare bones skeleton and it's up to you to flesh it out.
1: Definitely. So, before we get into some specifics about these patrons, um, wanted to clarify these are merely examples and uh, examples for you to structure patrons around, or to if you want to homebrew something. Here's a skeleton. Here's a a framework to make that happen. Um, The book certainly gives some specific examples. We're going to go through a couple of those. Um, And you're free to use exactly what the book does for some of these patrons. But it is flexible enough. Use this uh, use us at discretion, and you can totally make up your own patron if you so choose.
0: Yes, I would suggest, um, just in my opinion, that if you are a newer DM and you wanted to have a patron be a part of your campaign, I would suggest that you use maybe someone that is in the Forgotten Realms lore, since there are so many resources available, um, to look up that person in terms of their personality or how they might guide your party or what sort of resources that they have to offer. But in the book, there are three different types of how specifically having a patron in general, so not the specific things that are offered by whatever type your patron is, there's just three things that generally having a patron assisting your party that will do for you. And they list them off as group assistance, perks, and assignments. Those are the three main things in how it will affect your campaign. Um, and the first one, group assistance. Um, the book describes this as maybe having a patron uh, be your benefactor inspires a more coordinated and cooperative team. And so with this cooperation, each member of your party may grant advantage to another party member that they can see or hear on their next ability check, save, or attack. And this is granted that neither party member is incapacitated, and this can be done once per long rest per party member.
1: So yeah, this is already better than the help action, uh, which, as you're probably familiar with, gives uh, somebody an advantage uh, on their roll. Because um, typically, a help is just for ability checks, right? Um, you're not going to be able to give somebody an advantage through help um, on their next attack roll, or by making you know a Constitution saving throw after they just drank some poison. You can't really help them. in that that scenario Um, But with this group assistance because you all have this shared vision and goal of the group patron um, You can do that
0: You know, I actually had a couple things on here about how I I'd written, you know I'm not sure that I see too much of a difference between this and the help action and that does make sense that the help action is just for ability checks and there's nothing in regards to attack rolls or saving throws and depending, I guess, on your DM, there could be a, a flanking rule that you guys use. Um, so I guess maybe the advantage would maybe be mitigated by that. But also, I mean, they just have to see and or hear you and not be incapacitated. So you could be 20, 30, 40 feet away and you're kind of assisting them saying like, no, swing for the knees or something like that. And then you're getting advantage. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this could be really helpful for characters that need advantage, like rogues. Uh, They don't get their sneak attack unless they have advantage or some other conditions are met. So I think, you know, saying that early on, like I give this person advantage, makes sure that they have sneak attack. So I think it's pretty cool. Um, And honestly, the saving throws thing is pretty incredible. If you're trying to come in clutch on a saving throw, especially one that you're bad at. um, I know that uh, I have a character currently in a campaign who is just has a negative one wisdom and he almost always fails his perception checks or any sort of wisdom saving throw. So he's usually frightened and door charmed. Um, but having that advantage would be so nice.
1: Oh, yeah, especially when you need to get out of a really serious condition like that or, you know, to, to resist being petrified uh, would be another really clutch situation. Um, now, to be clear, you know, I believe that the reason they said you have to be conscious uh, is so we can't start applying this to death saves because I think that would be a bit... A bit weird you know how 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 would you practically you know assist somebody in making a death save it doesn't really make any sense
0: right I maybe unless you're like performing CPR but I guess you'd have to like <laughs> be next to them and that's kind of like a medicine check to stabilize somebody right right, right. yeah Um. so the second thing that is listed it is the the chapter and calls it perks so these are just general perks that you get there are perks listed in each type of patron that is listed in the book. Um, so generally, uh, just throughout your adventures, patrons will offer certain boons or perks for your party. Um, it, it was important to note in the book that Toshas has said that the DM should not feel pressured to stick to just these specific perks. They should feel free to ignore or add any perks that they see fit that would best benefit their party and narratively
1: make sense. That's right, Uh, but just as an example, um, some of these perks could be um, a regular, steady income. You know, depending on what that what the patron that you are a part of looks like. Uh, Maybe you have access to some sort of staff facilities. Uh, Maybe your your patronage grants you audience with some powerful political figures, Um, or maybe even it's uh, this sort of situation where the law is going to turn the other way. You know, when you happen to do something a little shady. Maybe you have a little bit of an exception from certain local laws, uh, depending on the organization. Um, and we'll get into some specifics once we start talking about a, a couple of the examples in the book, uh, but those are just some ideas of some of the perks that a patron might give you.
0: And, you know, honestly, when I was reading through some of these patrons and these perks that they get, I personally feel that I think it would be a really fun thing for the DM to do is to reve- not give all of these perks all at once, but maybe reveal more and more perks as the patron trusts the party more and they complete more and more missions for them. So it is kind of more of like a gift. So, all right, you've done five missions for me. All right, so now I have appeased the local law enforcement. So they will look the other way if you do something nefarious. So you can kind of like level up. You, Instead of like, all right, I've got a patron, so I've got these five perks and I'm good to go. The patron is like, no, 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 you will gain access to my resources as you do more missions for me. You want things from me? Well, I want things from you.
1: Right. And you can come into the guild hall, but you cannot go down that wing, not until they trust you more.
0: You cannot use the staff bathroom.
1: That's right. That's the whole campaign is getting access to the staff bathroom.
0: I mean, I'd play that game. (laughs) And I think it's cool because it adds like a secondary side quest to the campaign. Like, yes, you are trying to move through the story and you're trying to kill the BBEG and yes, you're trying to save the world, but also you might be trying to appease your patron throughout the story and make sure that you are still getting funded and make sure that you've still got people on your side, depending on the patron, depending on what have you, you may have powerful allies. So you may want to appease your patron to continue your allyship.
1: Yep. Absolutely.
0: And the last thing that they talk about in the book, um, In regards to general general things is assignments so as we we've discussed and said the word mission probably about a thousand times already um your patron will be more than likely sending you off on missions after all they've got to get their money's worth out of you so they need to make sure that their assets are protected there's obviously many different ways for your dm to play your patron But the book offers two different styles, is hands-on and hands-off. Now, both can yield very interesting story moments and narrative purposes. Um, With hands-on, I think that your party and their patron can get very close to one another and possibly take on more missions, but that could also leave themselves open to be extorted by their patron. So the closer that you get to them, maybe the closer they get to your intimate secrets. Or the hands-off approach would also be pretty cool, you know, given that maybe the party doesn't know too much about their patron. Or maybe that their patron will need some time to test them and make sure that they can do what that patron wants. So I think the, the hands-on and the hands-off both offer really, really cool elements to the story.
1: And I think, uh, interestingly... When we talk about some uh, a couple of these specific example patrons, we each took one that represents both of those types, right? I took the criminal syndicate, which is definitely more a hands-on approach where, you know, the the contact within that syndicate is giving your party direct assignments and tasks to accomplish. Um, whereas the one that you took, the religious order, that could be something that's a little bit less hands-on. You know, maybe the, the party is uh, trying to accomplish things to... Uh, bring recognition and uh, favor and fame to that religious order and some respect to it, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. I I felt the very same way as I was reading through these. Um, So just like Jaren said, I chose religious order this week and he chose crime syndicate. There are
1: obviously more in the book. The book gives uh, eight different examples. Um, Just to list those up, and we're going to talk specifically about the two. We have Academy. Ancient Being, Aristocrat, the Criminal Syndicate, the Guild, Military Force, Religious Order, and Sovereign. And each
0: patron is broken down into five different sections. Types, Perks, Contact, Members, and Quests. And other than the perks, uh, each section is, I believe, a D6 table that you can roll on or choose one of the options. So for the religious order, your party's service to this religious institution is more paramount than service to the deity. It may or may not have anything to do with faith, um, but you are more serving the order or the institution of this religion and not the God itself. So the types that are listed in the book are undead hunters, devout scholars, relic collectors, charitable missionaries, militant Inquisitors and doomsaying evangelists. So, for the undead hunters, it's a community of scholars and monster hunters laboriously researching the unquiet dead, tracking them to their lairs, permanently slaying them to rest. Or the devout scholars. Federation prizes knowledge and texts pertaining to their god. They collect rare and holy books and record the life stories of miracle working prophets. The relic collectors are an order of archaeologist monks who seek to fill their museum-like temple with storied holy relics. Charitable missionaries are adhering to the belief that religion empowers civilization, and this order travels far to help the downtrodden seeking to draw new believers by their virtuous example. Militant inquisitors are dogmatically rigid, hierarchical beings that seek to stamp out all threats to their belief, and doomsaying evangelists, And they're an order that believes the world is about to end they're convinced that if they persuade everyone else of this fact they may stave off the impending doom so i love that there's just a variety of types um you've got you know people that just want to teach you about god and maybe have you come to one of the potlucks and then you've also got people that say the end is near put on your tinfoil hats the end is near um And you've got monster slayers that are seeking to destroy the undead. I think, you know, there's a wide variety, and obviously, you know, working with your DM, you could probably come up with one that's even more catered and specific to what your party would want to team up with. Um, I I do like the idea of maybe a more cynical party extorting a religious order for their resources, Um, especially, you know, like if your party has infiltrated a cult or something and they know that this cult is, you know, banana sandwich crazy and maybe they're wanting to extort them for their resources and stamp them out at the end. Who knows? Um I think that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I think of of all these, my favorite is probably the doomsaying evangelist. I just love that idea of a group of crazy doomsayers, you know, that are just going around spreading word of the end times and I think that could be a a lot of fun um that and uh the relic collectors I think would both make for really fascinating uh, campaigns and settings and uh patrons um yeah I I think both of those what if the
0: doomsaying evangelists were actually right maybe that's the plot twist is like yeah they were actually right you may have thought that they were crazy but they were right
1: (laughs) could be a lot of fun
0: yeah I that's what I'm seeing so far, at least with religious order. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of fun that's attached to this. So the perks of being a, a patronizer of the religious order, the first is called divine service. So in times of need, an NPC, cleric, or druid from this religious order that is a sufficiently high enough level to cast a fifth level up to a fifth level spell can aid your party with that spell. Uh, And it is important to note that the book states that the caster supplies the material component So you do not have to have the diamond the ruby the the golden rings You don't need to have those this NPC will have them and As a reminder of what spells these could offer um, I'm not gonna list all of them, but I'm gonna list the important ones that I feel are very important Um, Scrying greater restoration commune and raise dead, which has a 10-day, like, boundary on it. So if your player character dies, potentially, um, as long as you get them back to your religious order within 10 days, they could cast that spell and raise your player. Or raise your character.
1: That that first one is extremely useful.
0: Yeah, to be honest, I was a little underwhelmed when I flipped to religious order and I saw only three perks. And I was like, damn, that first perk is amazing. That's any spells from first to fifth from this NPC that you don't need to pay for any sort of material components and they can just cast for you. That's incredible.
1: That's a pretty good exchange for going around and spreading the the crazy word of the end times. I'll trade I'll take that trade off.
0: Yeah, you want to res my player? I will tell as many people as you want about the end of the world. Yeah, heck yeah. So moving right along to the second perk, which is equipment. So this is a a very basic perk, um, but I think it is definitely something that would happen if you were a part of a religious order. Each member of your party has a holy symbol or druidic focus and also has a book of holy scriptures from that faith. So it's even if you aren't a caster you can use this as a spell casting focus. You know, we'll just say Christianity because it's the easiest one to say. That would be like you joining um, the, the Church of Jesus Christ and they give you a cross and a Bible. Like that would just make sense that they give you those things and let you on your merry way.
1: Is that how that works? You, you, join, you join the church, they give you a cross and a Bible?
0: I mean, that's what happened to me. I've
1: heard that's what happens.
0: When I left, I had to give it back. I had to, you know, erase my name out of the book and scrub my name off the back. But, you know, they they use it all the same.
1: And they stopped casting 5th level spells for you?
0: That was probably my biggest disappointment was that I couldn't, you know, just bring my dead friends in <laughs> and they could just res them. It was, it, it got really awkward because they were like, I thought we broke up. And I was like, ah, but my shoes are still here. Dark. Can I still hang out? But anyway... The last perk that you get uh, from being a part of the Religious Order is the proficiencies. So each party member gains proficiency in the religion skill if they don't already have it. Obviously, this is nothing too crazy, but I like that your party is getting religious knowledge from their patron. Um, Having access to different cultures' religion is nice to know, especially if you are maybe going into a foreign country or maybe your person has never seen dwarves before and you, only thing you really know about them is their religion. Being able to pass that off or say like, oh, I'm, I'm cool with your God. We are totally acquiescing and you can trust me. You know That might be useful, having some sort of knowledge. I, I would like to think that maybe the religious order has a library, a, a scholarly group of books that you may be able to study.
1: It's a perk that makes sense. It's nothing profound, but it's a perk that makes sense, for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, after you get that first perk, I don't... Like, what else can you give? So, the next section of the book is contact. So, this is how your party may relay information to and from the Order's deity, specifically. So, they give 1d6 examples that you can either roll on or choose... It is Shadow Tongue, a mysterious speaker for your order advises your next steps, but fears being discovered by a powerful rival faith. Inspired Creator, a gifted artisan conveys the will of the divine through prophetic song or artwork. Mysterious Text, the gradual translation of a secret holy text points you towards the next step of a divine destiny. Fierce Inquisitor, a severe hierarch directs you to cleanse wickedness from a religion, from the order or from within yourself. The Beloved Healer, A famed healer guides you to where you'll be needed most, even if their reasons are unclear when you arrive, or divinity's voice. Otherworldly messages are directed to you to undertake divine quests. Now, I like that all of these options can be both earnest and nefarious. I like the idea of maybe this mysterious text, like as you are translating it, it's giving you these missions and telling you what you need to do, and maybe you get to the end and it's not as wholesome as you thought it might be
1: yeah you get to the end and you're that meme that says wait are we the baddies
0: yes are we are we the bad guys um and just like with the types you know a dm could also make one of their own um i like the the divinity's voice maybe um i like the idea that like maybe a celestial animal or that the deity's familiar comes to you and speaks for them kind of like oh that's neat yeah kind of like a typical like super cute supernatural animal spirit guide in almost any young adult anime i would love to see it
1: like a patronus
0: yeah kind of like that i that that is like your spirit guide and that is directly the voice of the god telling you what to do so second to last thing that we get to in the book is the members so this is a table that's provided uh, i i did misspeak earlier this is not a 1d6 table These are roles that you may fill out or jobs that you may do within the religious order based off of your background that you've chosen when you did your character creation. So there are six different roles. You could be a counselor if your background is an acolyte, folk hero, hermit, sage, or urchin. You could be a defender if you're an acolyte, criminal, folk hero, outlander, or soldier. Um, An ascetic if you are an acolyte entertainer, hermit, sage, or soldier, an inquisitor if you are an acolyte, criminal, noble, sailor, or soldier, an emissary if you're an acolyte, charlatan, entertainer, noble, and sailor, or a chosen one, and that's for any. So you could be any one of those. I, th- I think it casts a wide net of backgrounds, um, or even if you just chose your own background. I know for one of my characters, I made up a background. I think I just made it like the runaway or something like that. You know, talked to my DM, made this background, gave it its own proficiencies and things. Um, so I like that there is an option for any sort of background. You can at least be this one thing. And I like that, that you're not just a party that bumbles around doing odd jobs. The missions that you're sent on uh, may or may not reflect the skills necessary to fulfill your role within the order. So. Not only are you a level 10 ranger, outlander that came from the wilds, but now as a part of this religious order, you may be a defender. Using your outlanding skills, you defend this religious order, and maybe throughout the night, you are up on the parapets. You are a watcher.
1: Yeah, and and definitely like some of these roles could help inform what type of um, religious quests you're sent on as well.
0: Yeah, and with the quests, they do give you a d6 table once again to roll on or choose. Um, And this section is pretty obvious. I think each section, each missions or quests section that's in all of these is pretty self-explanatory. But, um, so the first one is called Safe Escape. A band of the faithful wandered into territory hostile to your order. You must find them and escort them to safety. Relic Recovery. You seek a lost symbol of the order discovered in a dangerous place or in the hands of an enemy. Cult hunt. You hunt a cell of zealots dangerous to your order or mortals at large. Desperate pilgrimage. You protect members of the order as they participate in a pilgrimage that takes them through dangerous lands. Expunge heresy. You seek out the source of blasphemy that's taken root within the order. And prevalent prophecy. A rival order stands on the cusp of fulfilling a prophecy with deadly ramifications. You strive to undermine their blasphemous agenda. So something that is in the book that I enjoy is the addition that your religious order is opposed to any deities or faiths that are in opposition to your own. So you kind of have like a built-in rivalry already. Um, And I like that a lot of these are reflections of that, of... There's heresy, there's blasphemy, or there are enemies and we must snuff them out. That's very um, Crusader feel to me.
1: Oh yes, and that plays back into the idea that you might not necessarily be the good guys in this situation.
0: Mm-hmm, very much so. And obviously if you've done all six of these missions, um, I'm sure your DM could just draw inspiration from this table or send you on uh, more of those if your party's really into Relic Recovery or being an escort to a, a person that's on a pilgrimage. Uh, I think, you know, there's plenty of people going on pilgrimage. There's plenty of holy relics throughout the land. That could also be a really good hook getting you back into the main storyline. If the DM knows, I kind of want my players to jump into the main story again, that religious order could send them on a mission. And turns out while they're digging up relics, they also find a relic to this dragon that's been laying claim to land. So maybe now they're getting back interested into the main story.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So how are those crime syndicates doing? What's it like to be a part of one of those? Uh, This
1: one is really fascinating. It follows a similar format to what you've already covered. So we're going to kind of go through each section like that. Um, So crime syndicates uh, could be, you know, maybe you are uh, full-fledged members in this crime syndicate or maybe you're new hires, Looking to gain favor and uh, and, and trust within the, the crime family, um, and this doesn't even need to be something that you are like pleased about. You could be, you know, maybe caught wrong situation, wrong time, and now you owe this crime syndicate a big favor, or you're trying to pay off a big debt. Maybe you're simply born into the wrong family, but you're stuck with them now, and now you're in the in the crime family. And uh, just to give some examples, again, these are uh, just the book examples. Don't feel like you need to limit yourself to only these. But for examples of what a crime syndicate could look like, I mean, it's many various forms. Of course, we've got the Thieves Guild, the local band of thieves, um, which could employ you to do some, uh, you know, some smuggling or spying uh, here and there. Um, Could be an assassin society. Maybe you are paid, uh, like a paid hitman going to take somebody out. Um, Could be a magical arms dealer, somebody that uh, is paying you to go find these uh, lost artifacts, for example, uh, because they're looking to um, looking to move some weight and uh, make make some money. Um, this could be the form of a pirate fleet, you know, that adheres to a strict code of pirate honor, where they uh, converge only in response to some other outside threat. This could look like um, body snatchers, which is really a really fascinating idea to me, um, where they are like shapeshifters and uh, creatures that possess or impersonate other people um, looking to you know infiltrate and replace individuals that have a certain prominence within a society or within a political structure and looking to kind of replace them impersonate them um, or lastly the one the, the last example in the book um, is thought thieves uh, instead of you know taking over a body maybe they are the type that are looking to infiltrate the mind and steal deep dark secrets that have a, a lot of value so those are just some examples uh, like I said Don't feel like you need to restrict yourself to only these, but this is some ideas of what a crime syndicate could look like. And typically how this is gonna work, um, you're not going to be likely interacting with the organization directly. More than likely, you have some sort of criminal syndicate contact. Somebody that you report to in order to uh, make sure that you get paid and make sure that you're getting new assignments. And some ideas of what that uh, crime syndicate contact could look like. Somebody such as a personal mentor, maybe somebody within the organization that kind of took you under their wing and uh, sort of became a parental figure to show you the ropes. Um, could be like a clever urchin, you know, somebody on the streets that just kind of lays low, doesn't really garner much attention, but just has all the right connections to point you in the, the right direction. Um, could be a former law enforcement, somebody that, you know, now is sort of a double agent and giving you some tasks. Um, my favorite. The, uh, the Bon Vivant, or the boss of the local den of vice. Use your imagination, whether it is local gambling uh, den or uh, local house of indulgence. Um, it's kind of a cliche crime boss, I think, but it's, it's uh, fascinating nonetheless. Um, could be a traitor or perhaps some sort of uh, criminal royalty. Somebody who's kind of high up in the ranks, but they actually secretly... You know, they, they, they got the connections and they're running some shady business. Again, these are just examples. Don't need to restrict yourself to only these, but that's basically how it's going to work. You're in contact with one of these types of people. That's going to make sure that you get paid and get your new assignments. Um, so talking about some of the perks now that you are in this crime syndicate, um, obviously your assignments, um, Likely, you are, um, like I said, not getting paid directly, but you're, you're talking to this contact and uh, getting paid uh, on behalf of the clients of or their organization. Um, but with the crime syndicate, as you might imagine, they're going to take their cut. They're going to take a 15% cut of your pay and whatever else you decide to steal on the job. They're going to make sure that you know, it's beneficial for everybody and you're not getting away with uh, all of it. You know, they're going to take their cut, as, uh, as a crime syndicate should. Um, you might have access to, uh, certain contraband that, uh, the, the crime syndicate offers. Maybe not getting a discount per se, but easy access to stuff that the ordinary adventurer or citizen wouldn't in a general store, um, such as like certain poisons or narcotics, maybe even some nefarious weaponry. With the crime syndicate as well, um, you might imagine you're acquiring some some contraband, uh, stolen goods that you don't want to get caught with. You have access to uh, somebody who's going to be able to take care of that for you. Fences, uh, a service that can dispose of or liquidate those stolen goods. Where once again, you guessed it, the syndicates take a cut of that. Um, they're giving you a service. They're they're giving you this means to kind of lay lay low and um, do all these assignments and and tasks under the radar. They're going to take their cut. While we're mentioning laying low, uh, one of the other perks is the access to safe houses—places that you can lay low and uh, remain hidden in, um, and maintain, you know, a poor lifestyle for like literally no cost. Um, just be careful to keep the location of these safe houses close to the close of the vest, lest you lose favor with the crime syndicate. Um, you know, that might affect, we'll we'll talk about some of the, um, the rankings or, or positions that you could have in the crime syndicate, but might want to keep a lot of this information to the party, to yourself so that you can still kind of maintain that good trust and favor within the crime syndicate. And then lastly of the book listed perks, again, these are just examples, um, would be syndicate owned businesses, basically money, money laundering fronts. Um, you know, user imagination, this could really be any business, just as simple as like a basic general store could be a money laundering front. Um, so yeah, this is kind of up to the DM to decide what businesses this could be. But at these places, knowing that you are working for the syndicate, you definitely would get, you know, a small, like 5% discount at these places.
0: Oh man, I want to be a part of a crime
1: syndicate. This sounds like so much fun. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, potential for for role play, I think, and for uh, creative storytelling. Uh, really good cues as to how this could possibly work. Um, it's a, I really like it because, well, I guess generally I like these patrons because they are really good ways for the DM to communicate information and to give quests. Uh, right. One of the challenges uh, I, I can say as uh, as a DM from our perspective, it's one of the challenges is like telling players information without saying, hey, this is the DM telling the players. But with these patrons, it's really easy because you have, you know, a crime syndicate contact could be the person that's giving the players information and sending them on quests and kind of, you know, warning them about certain other NPCs or or places or saying, hey, don't go there, go over here. There's a lot of really um, useful tools and and creative uh, storytelling prompts, I think.
0: And as a player, I... I, I like to think that most people in their in their weekly game, um, unless you're doing something that's very specialized, I feel like generally a lot of people play neutral or good characters um, so I I think it was really fun when we did the Dragon Heist, the water deep adventure that was in the book. we were all evil characters and yes, it's fun to be good and it's fun to feel righteous, but also sometimes it's, you know really fun to. Not be, you know, chaotic evil where you're just slaying people left and right, but doing crime, doing nefarious things, using your stealth skills to get away with doing something a little nefarious. I mean, I'm obsessed with the idea of being a body snatcher. Come on. You've got a, a team full of shapeshifters or a team full of changelings where you can just be body snatchers. That'd be so fun. And then it would be so fun. And you're like smuggling things. You're stockpiling them you are selling them in the black market you're escaping the law like it just sounds so fun like (laughs) i i i swear i'm a sane person i
1: think uh foreign in our sunday game would this would definitely be up their alley
0: yes a hundred percent like it would be so cool to do that like be just be a part of that it feels feels very fun
1: yeah absolutely so as we talked about in the um, the religious order section, uh, the crime syndicate has membership roles as well. And uh, I, I kind of like, you, you mentioned this too, I like the idea of kind of working your way up the ranks. These maybe don't uh, lend themselves to being specific ranks. Like I don't think any one of these is like better or more important, but I think that, that idea is really fascinating to me. Uh, but just to give some examples, and these are laid out similarly where they've got roles and then some backgrounds that tie into what those roles are. I'm just going to read off the roles. There's uh, Burglar, Muscle, Con Artist, Cleaner, Mastermind, and Mole. So each one of these is really fascinating, but uh, depending on your background, it you might fit better for specific roles. And um, as I mentioned, I think with each one of these roles, it really kind of informs what type of quests um, or tasks the Crime Syndicate could give you. Right, if you're taking uh, the role of the mole, obviously you're you're likely to be given some sort of task that involve infiltration and finding out information, um, maybe just uh, gathering intel. You know, if you're the muscle, you're likely going to be given you know some sort of uh, intimidation task, or um, maybe you're you're sent on some um, assassination task. Right. Um, so to, to follow up on that, just an example of some of the quests. Once again, need to reiterate, this isn't the exhaustive list of all the things that a crime syndicate could give you. These are simply examples. Um, so we've got uh, acquisition and retrieval, uh, where you're attempting to steal important documents or, or clear out locations to use as hideouts. We've got heists, um, planning these uh, elaborate uh, robberies um, to uh, you know, that require the combined skills of your, of your team. We've got gang warfare, you know, ensuring that uh, no other crime syndicate gains a significant foothold in your territory. There is enforcement, where um, you're attempting to, you know, like we mentioned before, keep out these uh, corrupt, headstrong uh, other members of your syndicate, uh, keeping them in line with the goals and and the rules of the organization. Assassination, which is pretty straightforward. You're just sent to go and um, take out a prominent prominent uh, other citizens or um, people in political or religious orders. Um, You know, maybe folks that have a lot of bodyguards or some sort of elaborate security systems, and you are paid to go infiltrate that, get beyond it, and get the job done. Um, Or the last thing on this list, topple the powerful. Your syndicate is criminal and your method's illegal, but your goals are righteous. You help people who are powerless against exploitation by the powerful. It's kind of a ambiguous last quest this could be for the benefit of the good or maybe you in fact are the baddies
0: yeah that it it does make it ambiguous it leaves it open for dm and player interpretation and they have to make those decisions for themselves
1: yeah and remember all the tools you have at your disposal access to some contraband that might help you in these missions, um, the ability to, you know, whatever you, whatever you gather or, or take with you a pocket on these missions, syndicate's going to take a cut too. And they're going to, whatever pay you're, you're getting based on from the, from the client, right? Cause you're not hired directly from these different organizations. The crime syndicate pays you on behalf of them. They're going to take a cut too. The, uh, the rewards are there, but the risk is there as well. Yeah, for sure. The pay is probably really good, but uh, crime crime syndicate's gonna get paid too. So
0: obviously this is just two examples of what's in the book. There is actually another option when it comes to group patrons, and that is being your own patron. So this is kind of a a half page little blurb in the end of the patrons chapter. This is something that would need to be discussed beforehand. If your party does want to be their own patron, it is heavily advised to check with the running a business downtime activity that is outlined in the Dungeon Master's Guide. There's a lot of moving parts to a bureaucracy, so you'll probably want to be hiring additional help to assist you while you are away. So when you are determining the success of your business, you add the number of days that the character spent on that activity to the role because there is a certain role for how successful your business day was. And if your business does turn a profit, that profit will be calculated by multiplying it by four plus the number of characters that assisted in the activities. Right Now, Jaren, we had talked about this a little bit beforehand. You had said that you're a little bit more familiar with that because you've looked through the Dungeon Master's Guide and the running your own business activity.
1: Right, and to give a, a, a quick, real quick, Uh, context as to what these numbers actually mean. Um, The way that running a business works in the book um, is your character will spend some sort of uh, downtime, a number of days running this business, right? And in order to determine the success of that, you roll a D100 and then add the number of days spent running that business, maximum of 30. Uh, right. So let's say your character works the entire month to run this business. You roll a D on a D 100 and add 30 to it. And on certain rolls, it kind of depends. It determines the success, um, where the, the bottom end, you know, if you roll a one through 20, well, you must pay one and a half times the business's maintenance costs for each of those days. So it was not a very good month or on the top end running and uh, rolling a 91 or up. That's including that bonus, uh, based on the number of days you spent well the business covers its own maintenance costs, um, and you in a profit of 3d10 times five gold pieces. So now to put that into the context of if your group is their own patron and they're all collectively running this business, let's say you've got a party of six people that are all spending, you know, collectively uh, chipping in a little bit here and there, uh, since this cap still does max out at 30. Um, you know, let's say that, you know, each player spends... Uh, you know, a, a few days here and there, five days, and we get a, a maximum of 30. And so now when we're rolling, um, and we roll like, let's say we roll that 91 or higher cause we got, you know, bonus to 30. Um, now we're taking that profit, that 3d 10 times five, and we're multiplying that by four plus the number of characters It's four plus six. So we're taking 3d 10 times five times 10 on top of that. So working collectively together to run a business can have a huge benefit in terms of how much money you actually make.
0: Yeah, so I think this is a very fun addition to the gameplay. It's already built in, being able to run your own business, but now instead of running business, you can be your own patron, send yourself out on missions. You can get your own perks. And If you work with the DM, you could discover what those perks are. Um, and I think, you know, for people that like games like Settlers of Quitan or Civilization, this would be an amazing campaign for you like you could make an entire campaign about running a business and starting from rags and becoming a powerful patron or becoming a syndicate becoming whatever you wanted to be i think that'd be a cool campaign uh, for people that really like you know business simulator or management of anything i think that'd be really fun for them um it'd be a whole different type of game because maybe you're not using your spells the way that you thought that you might or using skills the way that you thought you might um you know, I think it'd be pretty cool.
1: yeah 100 percent this also could be a middle of the campaign break from adventuring and say you wanted to just take a little bit of a break from dungeon pillaging and killing dragons and you wanted to just put some of the the money that you've made to uh to use and set up a business or this could be uh, an end of campaign sort of activity um you know where like I said, you just kind of take some time off from adventuring for a little while and your character is just set up shop and you want to just have this happen at the end of the adventurer's time. It's really could happen anytime. Yeah.
0: All right. Well that actually wraps up the chapter on patrons. Do you have anything else you wanted to say regarding group patrons or business simulator?
1: I don't think so. It could be really fun depending on the group, depending on the DM, uh, and just depending on what I was interested in playing at the time. Um, I think this is a, a really fun option. Um, it, it wouldn't be the type of uh, thing I'd want to do every time, but I, I do like a lot of what's in this section. Same here. Definitely
0: not something that I want to do every time or have to deal with every time, but it further deepens the lore and I think it has very fun opportunities for the DM To really insert some of their more creative ideas and creative influences to the narrative and have the players play against them or with them specifically rather than just like NPCs that they've created, but maybe a business that they've created that they continuously come back to and benefit from. And well, that actually wraps up our show for this week. Thank you guys so much for stopping by. And if you did like this episode, please check out our future episodes, which are released every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Central. Next week, we'll be continuing our review of the content in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and be talking about sidekicks. This has been Discussions and Dragons. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. See you guys next time.